This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 13, Labor-Saving Machines Replace Many Jobs. Concerns that inventions of new machines that are powered by water, wind, horse, or steam or that use human power more efficiently, might replace workers and cause massive unemployment, have an extremely long history. These perennial narratives are reappearing with modification in the 21st century and could become important problems damaging confidence, as they did in the past. In this chapter, we consider a number of technology narratives, often using the terms labor-saving machinery or technological unemployment, that went epidemic and then faded, including the Luddite event in 1811, the Swing Riots in 1830, the Depression Scare of 1873-79, the Depression of 1893-97, and the extended Great Depression of 18, sorry, 1930-41. From Ancient Times to the Swing Riots Talk of automatic machinery replacing human muscle power goes back to the ancient world. The Iliad, Homer's 8th century BCE epic, describes a driverless vehicle, the tripod of Hephaestus, that navigates on its own. Homer refers to the vehicle as automatic. Aristotle, around 350 BCE, raised the possibility of machines replacing humans, saying, quote, For if every instrument could accomplish its own work, obeying or anticipating the will of others, like the statutes of Daedalus, or the tripods of Hephaestus, which, says the poet, of their own accord entered the assembly of the gods. If, in like manner, the shuttle would weave and the plectrum touch the lyre without a hand to guide them, chief workmen would not want servants, nor masters would want slaves." End quote. The statues of Daedalus were said to be able to run or walk like modern-day robots. Hero of Alexandria said in the first century BCE, wrote in the book Automata, describing how to make a programmable tripod of Hephaestus, as well as a coin-operated vending machine and other remarkable devices. Water-powered mills began grinding grain into flour by the first century BCE. So the idea of machines replacing jobs was in place long before the start of the Common Era, along with fears of unemployment. Searching 18th century newspapers, we find evidence of great interest in how technological advances are changing the economy, but without much alarm about technology's effects on jobs. The term industrial revolution does not come up at all in a search of 18th century newspapers, Historians only introduced that term later on. By the time, but by the 19th century, concerns about technology-based unemployment took center stage. The narrative was particularly contagious during economic depressions when many were unemployed. The defining event was a protest in 1811 in the United Kingdom by a group that claimed a mythical man, Ludd, as their spiritual leader. The mutation that renewed the old narrative and made it so virulent in 1811 was a new kind of power loom that was eliminating weavers' jobs. The term Luddite 
continued to appear regularly in newspapers in following years and today remains a synonym for a person who resists technological progress. In 1830, the swing riots in Britain were a response to the loss of farm jobs that occurred when the new mechanical thresher entered widespread use. The rioters' spiritual leader was the imaginary Captain Swing, and again rioters destroyed machinery. Certainly, the decline in agricultural employment due to mechanization was widely noted. It was a frightening change for the people in the advanced countries undergoing the fastest mechanization. Living on and working the land was an ancient tradition, and now workers had to do something entirely new to earn their keep, and the new jobs probably required moving to crowded urban areas. In describing their fears, they did not use the words technological unemployment, computers, or artificial intelligence, but they did have their own terms for the phenomenon. Including, including labor saving, as in labor saving appliances, labor saving devices, labor saving inventions, labor saving machines, and labor saving processes. Depression Narratives of the 1870s. In the Depression of 1873 to 1879, a particularly strong depression in the United States and Europe. There was concern that labor saving inventions were at least partly to blame for a high unemployment, which took center stage in the popular consciousness, likely worsening the depression. In the U.S., this depression is typically attributed to financial speculation, leading to the banking panic of 1873. But the fear induced narrative about a long term loss of jobs and job prospects due to labor saving inventions may help to explain why the depression. Went global. Certainly, the depression of the 1870s was accompanied by farmers' accelerated adoption of labor saving machinery, along with more workers destroying machines and hired farm laborers threatening violence. Underneath the violence was widespread concern about the outlook for the common laborer. In the middle of that depression, the famous 1876 Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. A celebration of 100 years of U.S. independence turned out to be more a testimony to labor saving machinery than a remembrance of the American Revolution. The exhibition did display some of George Washington's personal items, but not much more about history. Instead, it presented examples of modern industry from 20 countries. The Visitor's Guide describes one of the most dramatic exhibitions in the gigantic machinery hall. Quote, In the center of this building is located a 1400 horsepower coreless engine, capable of driving, if required, the entire shafting necessary to run all the machinery exhibits. This engine has a 40 inch cylinder with a 120 inch stroke and was constructed for this special service. It will be run when, when required, but it is expected that the engines on exhibition will do a portion of the work of driving the shafting. The main lines of shafting are at a height of 18 feet above the floor and extend almost the entire length of the building. Counter shafts extend from the aisles into the avenues at necessary points. The exhibition also gave reason for alarm regarding jobs in agriculture. Quote, Among the most extensive and interesting exhibits will be the agricultural machines in active operation, comprising everything used on the farm or plantation, in tillage, Harvesting or preparation for market. 
manufactured foods of all kinds, and all varieties of fish, with the improved appliances for fish culture. End quote. Though impressive, the Centennial Exhibition's technological exhibition led to fears about jobs and the horrible human effects of unemployment. The Philadelphia Inquirer in, in 1876 wrote, quote, Want of employment leads to discouragement, hopelessness, and despair. It overflows almshouses, charitable institutions, prison houses, and penitentiaries. It degrades manhood. It ruins families. Misery, crime, and suicide follow in its wake. It supplies ready victims for the gallows. Today, one man does what would have been the work of 150 years ago. The steam power of seven tons of coal is sufficient to make 33,000 miles of cotton thread in 10 hours, while without machinery, this would equal the hand labor of 70,000 women. Consumption does not keep pace with the production by machinery. Markets become glutted, end quote. As a result of these fears, in 1879, Senator George Frisbee Hoer of Massachusetts set up a committee to inquire and report as to the extent to which labor-saving processes have entered into production and distribution of products to the displacement of human labor. However, by 1879, the counter-narrative had already developed. Labor-saving processes will increase the number of jobs, not decrease them. One editorial in the Daily American, dismissing the worries about replacement of labor by machines, noted, quote, The whole tendency of labor-saving processes is toward the elevation of the laboring classes, and if the change is accompanied by some hardship, so is every step in the progress of the human race, end quote. This editorial sounds very much like arguments made today to reassure workers regarding the fear of job loss, but the overall discussion of labor-saving machinery during the Depression of the 1870s suggests that such arguments were not persuasive. Henry George's 1879 bestseller, Progress and Poverty, faced these issues head-on. The book held that the immense technological advances of the time were creating inequality and increasing the number of people who lived in poverty. The book asserted, quote, for if labor-saving inventions went on until perfection was attained and the necessity of labor in the production of wealth was entirely done away with, then everything that the earth could yield could be obtained without labor, and the margin of cultivation would be extended to zero. Wages would be nothing, and interest would be nothing, while rent would take everything. For the owners of the land, being enabled to labor without a, being to an enabled without labor to obtain all the wealth that could be procured from nature, there would be no use for either labor or capital, and no possible way in which either could compel any share of wealth produced. And no matter how small population might be, if anybody but the landowners continued to exist, it would be at the whim or by the mercy of the landowners. They would be maintained either for the amusement of landowners or as paupers by their bounty." End quote. At this time, the phrase push a button arose to indicate a mechanical actuation that completes an electrical circuit. For example, in 1879, the news described an invention in France that would allow a horse's rider to push a button to deliver an electrical shock to the horse, a system that could be used to discipline, to discipline 
a misbehaving horse. Labor-saving inventions in the depression of the 1890s. Such inventions only exacerbated fears of unemployment. An 1894 editorial in the LA Times blamed the severity of the 1890s depression on labor-saving inventions. Quote, there is no doubt that the introduction of labor-saving machinery and the consequent increase of production has had more than a little to do with the present depression in business. It is true that during the past few years, the increase in the invention and adoption of labor-saving machinery has been so great that the community has hardly been able to keep up with it, end quote. The article went on to list recent examples of, la of labor-saving innovations, quote, in the manufacture of hats, machinery has multiplied, multiplied the productive power of labor nearly nine times. Manifestly, we can't wear nine times as many hats as formerly. By the adoption of improved processes, the labor involved in the production of flour has been reduced 80%, yet we can each eat no more flour. End quote. That same year, the San Francisco Chronicle chimed in with an editorial about labor-saving machinery. The editorial was entitled, The Great Problem. Quote, the rich have grown richer and the poor have grown poorer. Side by side with the growth of enormous fortunes, the hovels of the struggling laborers have become more dilapidated. And to further emphasize the seriousness of these considerations, it may be said that this problem must soon be solved or there will become, or there will come a, a cataclysm which will destroy modern civilization." End quote. In 1895, a new dumbwaiter system was installed in U.S. kitchens in multi-floor buildings. The dumbwaiter had an array of buttons, one for each floor of the building. Press the number of the floor, and the elevator would automatically ascend to that floor and stop there, to return if a button was then pressed from that floor. In Stores Are Merely Labor-Saving Machines, an 1897 letter to the editor of the Chicago Daily Tribune, the letter writer adds to the growing list of labor-saving innovations. He refers to the department store movement, the movement to build gigantic stores that sold everything imaginable under one roof. The movement had started in 1838 with the Bon Marche department store in Paris. By the 1890s, department stores were an accelerating international epidemic with continued expansions, glamorizing, and advertising over succeeding decades. The letter writer notes that even further expansion of department stores could yet do away with so many people employed to distribute where one-third of them could do as well. In Chicago, Field Marshall and Marshall Field and Company, established in 1881, built a seven-story department store in downtown Chicago in 1887. It then built an even more glamorous nine-story store in 1893 to coincide with the large crowds expected to attend the International Fair, the 1893 Columbian Exhibition or Exposition. In 1897, Chicago's elevated street railway, called The Loop, was completed, connecting many more people to Marshall Fields, marking an innovation in efficient retailing that may have prompted the letter writer. Particular striking, particularly striking during the 1893 to 1899 depression was a spike in public anger about trusts, combinations of companies that fixed prices at a high level. 
In an 1899 talk with, in New York, John C. Chase, mayor of Haverfill, Massachusetts, and former trade unionist said, The trust is, in my opinion, a labor-saving machine, apparently meaning that the modern trust adopts such machines in its inhuman effort to dispense with labor. Machines, Robots, and Future Technological Unemployment The notion of a world without labor became more vivid with E. M. Forster, the English novelist famous for such classics as A Room with a View, A Passage to India, and Howard's End. Forster's 1909 science fiction story titled The Machine Stops describes a future in which machines do everything. Quote, Then she generated the light, and the sight of her room, flooded with radiance and studded with electric buttons, revived her. There were buttons and switches everywhere, buttons to call for food, for music, for clothing. There was the hot bath button, by pressure of which a basin of imitation marble rose out of the floor, filled to the brim with a warm, deodorized liquid. There was the cold bath button. There was the button that produced literature. And there were, of course, the buttons by which she communicated with her friends. The room, though, the room, though it contained nothing, was in touch with all that she cared for in the world. End quote. Forster's story ends when the machine unexpectedly malfunctions, bringing death and destruction to a world that has grown too dependent upon it. A little more than a decade later, during the 1920-1921 Depression, the labor-saving machinery narrative mutated yet again, leading to the idea of robots. A 1921 Czech play, R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots, by Carol Kopeck, coined the term robot, from, from the Czech word for worker, to replace the earlier terms labor-saving invention and automaton. The play first appeared in English translations in New York City in October of 1922, to strong reviews. The play was not an immediate success, and it was not made into a, a movie until 1948, but it started a narrative epidemic. The play and its ideas went viral, enough to cause the word robot to enter most of the world's languages. The play tells the story of the scientist Rossum, who invents a robot, and the businessman Domen, who starts manufacturing robots and ultimately faces a revolt of the robots who have developed minds of their own. The idea of a mechanical man who walks, talks, and fights might seem to be more inherently contagious than stories of push-button devices, but, Ka but Kopek's initial story reached only a small base of people, and so the robot epidemic was gradual. Perhaps the recovery rate was also low because of the constant reminders of technological innovations in the following decades. Very few newspapers mentioned robots in the 1920s, but use of the term grew over the decades. To become more contagious, the idea of a robot may have needed further development by creative people. Before 1930, Increasingly Vivid Narratives of Machines Replacing People The story of an automated future was growing more and more vivid, but the stories still seemed mostly remote. The word robot did not become common in newspapers and books until the 1930s, although there were some dramatic exceptions, such as a traffic light, described in the Los Angeles Times in July of 1929, 
that replaced policemen who had been directing traffic at an intersection in Medford, Massachusetts. Quote, The robot, which is made up in the usual form of red, yellow, and green light traffic tower, is operated automatically by the automobiles themselves as they pass over sensitive plates set in the street surface. No car is required to wait when there is no opposing traffic. When the car reaches an intersection and the way is clear, the control from the plate in the pavement will give it a green light. If a car is waiting to cross an intersection and the opposing traffic is heavy, the light permitting the car to cross will automatically set in its favor whenever there is a gap and will immediately return in favor of the heavy traffic once the car is clear. The robot handles multiple numbers of machines on the same principle, the streets containing the greatest amount of traffic being emptied or partially emptied first, thus creating a smooth, even flow of traffic through all parts of the complicated square here. End quote. Reading this paragraph almost a century later, we may wonder why we still find ourselves occasionally waiting in our cars at red lights when there is no opposing traffic. There must have been problems with this particular robot that still do not have an inexpensive and practical solution. But this 1929 story was beginning to have an impact. A decade earlier, a new phrase has, had entered the, in the English language to describe the effects of labor-saving inventions. The phrase was technological unemployment. This phrase appeared first in 1917, but it started its epidemic upswing in 1928. The count for technological unemployment skyrockets in the 1930s in Google engrams into an epidemic curve much like the Ebola epidemic curve we saw in Chapter 3. The technological unemployment curve peaked in 1933, the worst year of the Great Depression. A parallel epidemic occurred when the term power age, which is now mostly gone. The power age referred to the perception that activities once done by muscle are now exclusively done by powerful machines. During the 1870s depression, about half the U.S. labor force worked in agriculture, and the labor-saving machinery of that decade tended to be agricultural equipment pulled by horses. By 1880, only a fifth of the U.S. labor force worked in agriculture, and the narratives focused instead on new, fuel-powered, and electronic machines, threatening the jobs to which agricultural people fled to farms, or fled from the farms. Today, less than 2% of the U.S. workforce works in agriculture. Technological unemployment became a new and persistent worry. It is curious that the narrative epidemic of technological unemployment began in 1928, a time of prosperity well before the Great Depression. Still, 1928 was a time of heightened concern about unemployment, which was blamed entirely on technological unemployment and not connected in public talk to any weakness in the U.S. economy. Philip Snowden, former and future chancellor of the Exchequer in the United Kingdom, wrote in the New York Times in 1928 that the U.S., then the, de the leader in developing labor-saving devices, had a unique problem of technological unemployment. Quote, But if other countries are compelled to follow America in specialization and in the displacement of human labor, the problem of unemployment in these countries will assume the feature of the existing unemployment problem in America. 
This, indeed, is the great problem which every industrial nation must face, namely, to avoid the present hardship which mechanical and scientific advance inflicts upon a mass of the wage-earning class. In other words, the problem is to free the human being from slavery to the iron man. Whoa. End quote. By the 1920s, there was so much talk about efficiency experts whose time and motion studies treated workers as if they were machines. Yeah, scientific management. The experts' goals were to eliminate any unnecessary motions, thereby saving time and labor cost. Like other narratives that took form in the late 1920s and went viral in the Great Depression of the 1930s, efficiency was associated with technological unemployment. How did the epidemic of the technological unemployment fears start? In March of 1929, U.S. Senator Robert Wagner stated his belief that unemployment was much higher than recognized, and he asked the Department of Labor to do a study of unemployment. Later that month, the department delivered the, the study that produced the first official unemployment rates published by the U.S. government. The study estimated that there were over that there were almost 1.9 million unemployed people in the U.S. and about 23 million wage earners, implying implying an unemployment rate of 7.4 percent. This high estimated unemployment rate came at a time of great prosperity, and it led people to question what would cause such high unemployment amidst abundance. In April of 18, 1928, a month later. The Baltimore Sun ran an article referring to the theories of Sumner Schlichter, who later became a prominent labor economist in the 1940s and 50s. In the article, readers are told that Schlichter noted several causes of unemployment, but pointed out that, at present, the most serious is technological unemployment. Specifically, specifically, the reason we have this unemployment is because we are eliminating jobs through labor-saving methods faster than we are creating them. These words, alongside the new official reporting of unemployment statistics, created a contagion of the idea that a new era of technological unemployment had arrived, and the Luddites' fears were renewed. The earlier agricultural depression with its associated fears of labor-saving machinery, began to look like a model for an industrial depression to follow. Stuart Chase, who later coined the term the New Deal, in the title of a 1932 book, published Men and Machines in May of 1929, during a period of rapidly rising stock prices. The real inflation-corrected U.S. stock market, as measured by the S&P Composite Index, rose a final 20% in the five months after the book's publication, before the infamous October 1929 crash. But concerns about unemployment were apparent even during the boom period. According to Chase, we were approaching the zero hour of accelerating unemployment. Quote, Machinery saves labor in a given process. One man replaces ten. A certain number of these men are needed to build and service a new machine, but some of them are permanently displaced. If purchasing power has reached its limits of expansion, because mechanization is progressing at an unheard of rate, only unemployment can result. In other words, from now on, the better able we are to produce, the worse off we shall be. 
even if the accelerating factor has not arrived, the misery of normal unemployment continues unabated. This is the economy of the madhouse. End quote. The book conveyed a sense that the beginnings of the catastrophe were imminent. Accelerating unemployment, it said, if not already here, may conceivably arrive at any moment. This is significant. The narrative of out-of-control unemployment was already starting to go viral before there was any sign of the stock market crash of 1929. During the days of sharp U.S. stock market drops the week before the October of 1929 stock market crash, a nationally reported national business show was running in New York, October 21st to 26th, in a convention center, since demolished, adjacent to Grand Central Station that many Wall Street passed through to and from work. The show emphasized immense progress in robot technology and in the, work, in, in the office workplace. It was described after the show moved to Chicago in November thus, quote, Exhibits in the National Business Show yesterday revealed that the business office of the future will be a factory in which machines will replace the human element, when the robot, the mechanical man, will be the principal office worker. There were, ad there were addressers, aut autographers, billers, calculators, cancelers, binders, coin changers, form printers, duplicators, envelope sealers and openers, folders, labelers, mail meters, payroll machines, tabulators, transcribers, and other mechanical marvels. A typewriting machine pounded out 40 letters or sorry, pounded out letters in 40 different languages. A portable computing machine, which could be carried by a traveling salesman, was on exhibit, end quote. The 1930s, a new form of Luddism prevails. Soon after the 1929 stock market crash, by 1930, the crash itself was often attributed to the surplus of goods made possible by new technology, quote, when the climax was reached in the last months of 1929, a period of adversity was inevitable because the people did not have enough money to buy the surplus goods which they had produced, end quote. As noted above, fear of robots was not strong in most of the 1920s when the word robot was coined. The big wave of fear had to wait until the 1930s. Historian Amy Sue Bix in 2000 offers a theory to explain why the 1920s were fearless. The kinds of innovations that received popular acclaim in the 1920s didn't obviously replace jobs. If asked to describe new technology, people in most of the 1920s would perhaps think of the Model T Ford, whose sales had burgeoned to 1.5 million cars a year by the early part of the decade. Radio stations, which first appeared around 1920, provided an exciting new form of information and entertainment, but they did not obviously replace many existing jobs. More and more homes were getting wired for electricity, with many possibilities for new gadgets that required electricity. Labor unions in the 1920s tried to sound the alarms about machines replacing jobs, and they sounded those alarms with increasing force as the 1920s proceeded, but the, pub but the public didn't react much. The labor unions' alarms were not contagious 
because people had not heard many stories about inventions replacing jobs. By the 1930s, Bix notes, the stories had replaced the news had replaced stories of exciting new consumer products with stories of job-replacing innovations. Dial telephones had replaced switchboard operators. Mammoth continuous strip steel mills replaced steel workers. New loading equipment replaced coal workers. Breakfast cereal producers bought machines that automatically filled cereal boxes. Telegraphs became automatic. Armies of linotype machines in multiple cities allowed one central operator to set type for printing newspapers by remote control. New machines dug ditches. Airplanes had robotic co-pilots. Concrete mixers laid and spread new roads. Tractors and reaper thresher combines created a new agricultural revolutions. Sound movies began to replace the orchestras that played at movie theaters. And of course, the decade of the 1930s saw massive actual unemployment in the U.S., with the unemployment rate reaching an estimated 25% in 1933. It is difficult to know which came first, the chicken or the egg. Were all these stories of job-threatening innovation spurred by the exceptional pace of such innovations? Or did the stories reflect a change in the news media's interest in such innovations because of public concern about technological unemployment? The likely answer is a little bit of both. Under consumption, Overproduction in the Purchasing Power Theory of Wages Unlike the technological unemployment narrative, the labor-saving machines narrative was strongly connected to an underconsumption or overproduction theory, the idea that people couldn't possibly consume all of the output produced by machines with chronic unemployment as the inevitable result. This theory's origins date back to the mercantilists in the, in the 1600s, but popular use of the terms underconsumption and overproduction first appears in ProQuest and Google Ngrams around the time of the Depression in the 1870s. Henry George described the overproduction theory in his, in his 1879 book, Progress and Poverty, during the Depression of the 1870s, concluding it was an absurdity. The theory of overproduction or underconsumption picked up steam in the 1920s. It was mentioned within days of the stock market crash of October of 1929 in interpreting the clash or the crash. The real peak of these narratives was in the 1930s. Underconsumption narratives appeared five times as often in ProQuest news and newspapers in the 1930s as compared with any other decade. The narrative has virtually disappeared from public discourse, and the topic now appears largely in articles about the history of economic thought. But it is worth considering why it had such a strong hold on the popular imagination during the Great Depression, why the narrative epidemic could recur, and the appropriate mutations or environmental changes that would increase contagion. Today, underconsumption sounds like a bland technical phrase but it had considerable emotional charge during the Great Depression, as it symbolized a deep injustice and collective folly. At the time, it was mostly a popular theory, not an academic theory. Despite the obvious reality that deflation necessitates wage cuts, an opposing 
purchasing power theory of wages became popular in the 1930s. This theory said that excessive competition had forced down wages to such an unfair low level that workers could not afford to consume the output. Thus, the depression could be cured by forcing all employers to raise wages. The economist Gustav Cassell in 1935 called these ideas charlatan teachings that have recently taken a conspicuous place in popular dissension of social economy as well as in political agitation. But the public did not dismiss such charlatan teachings. In the 1932 presidential campaign, Franklin Roosevelt ran against incumbent Herbert Hoover, who had been unsuccessful with deficit spending to restore the economy. Roosevelt gave a speech in which he articulated the already popular theory of underconsumption. His masterstroke was putting it in the form of a story inspired by Lewis Carroll's famous children's book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. In that book, a bright and inquisitive little girl named Alice meets many strange creatures that talk in nonsense and contradictions. Roosevelt's version of this story replaced his opponent Hoover with a jabberwock, a speaker of nonsense. Quote, a puzzled, somewhat skeptical Alice asks the Republican leadership some simple questions. Will not the printing and selling of more stocks and bonds, the building of new plants, and the increase of efficiency produce more goods that we, than we can buy? No, shouted the jabberwock. The more we produce, the more we can buy. What if we produce a surplus? Oh, we can sell it to foreign consumers. How can the foreigners buy it? Why, we will lend them the money. Of course, these foreigners will pay us back by sending us their goods. Oh, not at all, says Humpty Dumpty. We sit on a high wall of a holly smoot tariff. How will these foreigners pay off these loans? That is easy. Did you ever hear of a moratorium? End quote. Roosevelt used this story to point out the folly of Republican policy with its attempts at economic stimulus, but his campaign did not suggest any solution to the problem. Instead, in his Alice speech, he proposed to install investor protections. He, had, he also promised not to make the overly optimistic statements that President Hoover had, and he noted that he would not encourage more stock market speculation. Elected in 1932, Roosevelt signed in 1933 the National Industrial Recovery Act, creating the National Recovery Administration, which attempted to enforce fair wages. We discuss the outcome of this experiment later in Chapter 17. On the face of it, the underconsumption seemed to explain the high unemployment of the Great Depression, but academic economists never seriously embraced the theory, which had never been soundly explained. Often the theory was presented as an adjunct to technological unemployment. Underconsumption suddenly became a problem in the 1930s because of the nation's newfound ability to produce more than it needed. But other accounts of underconsumption make no mention of technology. For example, in 1934, Chester C. Davis, administrator of the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, described how his agency was redistributing purchasing power to the masses so as to help them spend more and thereby deal with underconsumption. He explained why he thought technological unemployment had suddenly become so important. Quote, 
Why does our nation seem to need this supplement to the market mechanism after 158 years? If you, if you, have, the, you have the answer if you will go back into history and consider the gradual concentration of business into great corporations, of farmers into marketing cooperatives, and of labor into collective bargaining associations. These have reduced the area of the free market and have increased the power of individuals controlling these concentrations, end quote. In other words, Davis saw the concentration of business as amplifying the problem of technological unemployment. The massive unemployment set off serious social problems. For example, in the U.S., it caused the forced deportation, then called repatriation, of a million workers of Mexican origin. The goal was to free up jobs for, quote, real, end quote, Americans. The popular narrative supported these deportations, and there was little public protest. Newspaper reports showed photos of happy Mexican-Americans waving goodbye at the train station on their way back to their original home to help the Mexican nation. The dial telephone also played an important part in narratives about unemployment and the associated underconsumption. The older telephone, which had no dial, required a caller to pick up the phone receiver and connect to a telephone operator who said, number please. The caller had to tell the operator to make the connection. The dial telephone, which required no contact with an operator, was not invented during the Great Depression. In fact, the first patent for a dial telephone dates to 1892. The transition from the non-dial telephone to the dial telephone took many decades. However, during the Great Depression, there rose a narrative focus on the loss of telephone operators' jobs, and the transition to dial telephones was troubled by moral qualms that by adopting the dial phone, one was complicit in destroying a job. For example, the U.S. Senate in Washington, D.C., replaced its non-dial phones with dial telephones in 1930, the first year of the Great Depression. Three weeks after their installation, Senator Carter Glass introduced a resolution to have them torn out and replaced with older phones. Noting that operators' jobs would be lost, he expressed true moral indignation against the new phones. Quote, I ask unanimous consent to take from the table Senate Resolution 74, directing the sergeant-at-arms to have these abominable dial telephones taken out on the Senate side. I object to being transformed into one of the employees of the telephone company without compensation, end quote. His resolution passed, and the dial telephones were removed. It is hard to imagine that such a resolution would have passed if the nation had not been experiencing high unemployment. This story fed a contagious economic narrative that helped augment the atmosphere of fear associated with the contraction in aggregate demand during the Great Depression. The loss of jobs to robots, that is, automation, became a major explanation of the Great Depression, and hence a perceived major cause of it. In an, an article in the LA Times in 1931 was one of many that explained this idea, quote, Whenever a man is replaced by a machine, a consumer is lost, for the man is deprived of the means of paying for what he consumes. The greater the number of robots employed, the less is the demand for what they produce, for men cannot consume what they cannot pay for. 
This condition is inescapable. No political panaceas can alleviate this purely human distress. End quote. Even if a man hasn't lost his job yet, he will consume less owing to the prospect or possibility of losing his job. The U.S. presidential candidate who lost to Herbert Hoover in 1928, Al Smith, wrote in the Boston Globe in 1931, quote, We now know that much unemployment can be directly traced to the growing use of machinery intended to replace manpower. The human psychology of it is simple and understandable to everybody. A man who is not sure of his job will not spend his money. He would rather hoard it, and it is difficult to blame him for doing so, as against the day of want. End quote. Albert Einstein, the world's most celebrated physicist, believed this narrative in 1933, at the very bottom of the Great Depression, saying the Great Depression was the result of technical progress. Quote, According to my conviction, it cannot be doubted that the severe economic depression is to be traced back, for the most part, to internal economic causes. The improvement in the apparatus of production through technical invention and organization has decreased the need for human labor and thereby caused the elimination of a part of labor from the economic circuit and thereby caused a progressive decrease in the purchasing power of the consumers. End quote. By that time, people had begun to label labor-saving inventions as robots, even if there were no mechanical men to be seen. One article in the LA Times in early 1931, about a year into the Great Depression, said that robots were already the equivalent of 80 million hand workers in the U.S. alone, while the male labor force was only 40 million. A word is born. Technocracy. By 1932, the bottom of the stock market decline, the U.S. stock market had lost over 80% of its 1929 value in less than three years. We have to ask, why did people value the market at such a low level? A big part of the answer was a narrative that went viral. Modern industry could now produce more goods than people would ever want to buy, leading to an inevitable and persistent surplus. This new narrative became associated with two words that left ordinary people out of the economic picture. Technocracy, a society that is commanded by technicians, and technocrat, one of these now-powerful technicians. These words weren't new to the 1930s. They had been used occasionally in the 1920s to refer to a theory that the government should be run by scientists who could assure world peace. Thorstein Veblen had written a book, The Engineers and the Price System, during the previous Depression, 1920-1921, that envisioned a world run, run by a Soviet of technicians. But the words took on a new meaning with the explosion and duration of unemployment by the early 1930s. A Columbia University group with revolutionary pretensions called itself technocracy. Led by engineer Howard Scott, it was composed of scientists from across the United States. By 1933, Scott was as famous as movie stars of that day. The technocracy movement created its own jargon and proposed a new kind of money, electric dollars. 
as explained in a 1933 book, The ABC of Technocracy, written under the supervision of Howard Scott and published under the pseudonym Frank Arkwright, electric dollars represented units of energy. The name Arkwright appears to have been inspired by the life of Richard Arkwright, the inventor of the spinning frame, a water-powered spinning machine that displaced jobs and resulted in an anti-machinery anti riots in 1779. The Arkwright book and its ideas went viral, particularly with the idea that modern science would soon transform the economy, even eliminating money as we know it. The story has many similarities to the Bitcoin story, right down to the use of a pseudonym, Frank Arkwright, like Satoshi Nakamoto. According to the ABC of Technocracy, the U.S. economy had an installed capacity of a billion horsepower. It also stated that one horsepower equals 10 men's labor, and that running the machinery that the ten, for the 10 laborers required only two eight-hour days a week. Thus, the book gave credence to the idea that the rising unemployment of the Great Depression was the beginning of an alarming new permanent condition. The conclusions reached by one report were disturbing indeed. The, situ quote, the situation we are now facing is entirely without precedent in human history, because up to less than 100 years ago, the human body was the most efficient machine for energy conversion on Earth. The advent of technology makes all findings based on human labor irrelevant, because the rate of energy conversion of the modern machine is many thousand times that of a man. Up to the year 1890, the movement of the social body in terms of energy production might be compared to the progress of an ox cart. Since 1890, by comparison, it has attained the speed of an aeroplane and is constantly accelerating. End quote. The idea that the world would now belong to the technicians who designed and ran the machinery was naturally frightening to those who did not deem themselves capable of becoming scientists, that is, most people, and it would have resulted in a hesitation to spend, invest, and hire, which worsened and prolonged the Great Depression. The New York Times, in 1933, described some amazement at the strength of the technocracy fad, quote, the sensational nature of the technocratic case caused a mass movement that was almost hysterical. Many of those who read Scott's prediction that there would be 20 million unemployed within two years unless something were done along lines set forth by him, vague as those were, looked to the imminent collapse of our industrial and economic system. Business contracts were even held up because of the fear engendered by technocracy, end quote. The technological unemployment narrative appears to have saturated the population by some time in the 1930s. Afterward, references to it did not need to use the phrase technological unemployment because everyone understood the concept. For example, a long 1936 New York Times article deploring the tragic effects of long-term unemployment on the human spirit and on family relations did not refer to any theory of unemployment beyond stating that the unemployed people described having been superannuated less by age than by newly invented machines. The narrative turns to World War II. Although the technological unemployment narrative faded after 1935, 
as revealed by Google Ngrams, it did not go away completely. Instead, it continued to exert some influence in the run-up to World War II, until new narrative constellations about the war became contagious. Many historians point to massive unemployment in Germany to explain the accession to power of the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler in the election of 1933, the worst year of the Depression. But rarely mentioned today is the fact that a Nazi party official promised, to make, promised that year to make it illegal in Germany to replace men with machines. Charlie Chaplin's 1936 movie, Modern Times, marks a narrative that was so powerful that it remains in collective memory today. The movie contained a hilarious scene in which a company adopts a new technology that allows it to streamline the workers' lunch hour by having robotic hands feed the employee his lunch. When Charlie Chaplin is fed his lunch, the machine malfunctions and speeds up to such a rate that it creates a terrible mess. Not coincidentally, the story was contagious at a time of high concern with labor-saving machines. Searching for mention of robots in the news during World War II, we find some examples. Early in the war, a Yale scientist, Clark Hull, was working toward eventually developing armies of robot soldiers. But the account of his efforts seemed far off and far-fetched. The robot bombs and robot planes used by the Nazis later in the war, were reported to be ineffective. Instead, the news was filled with narratives of great heroism by real human soldiers. To go viral again, the labor-saving machines narrative needed a new twist after World War II, a twist that could seem to reinforce the newly rediscovered appreciation of human intelligence, and ultimately, of the human brain. The narrative turned to the new electronic brains, that is, computers. The phrase electronic brain has a beautiful epidemic curve peaking around 1960, which is indicative of a constellation of machine narratives then that we explore in the next chapter. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.